it's well documented that I was a homeless teenager in the city. So I left home at 16. To have gone from a homeless teenager in the city that I live in to then end up being the cabinet member and the person responsible for the strategy on homelessness across the entire city, representing us on national bodies, for me, that's a huge deal. Um, And it's something that's not just for me, it means that I can actually go out and speak to young people from our communities and genuinely say, look, I was I used to break the rules, I wasn't perfect by any stretch of the measure. So if I can do it, trust me, you definitely can do it. How are you doing today, Sharon? I am very well, thank you. How are you? I'm all good. Thank you very much. And thank you for coming to the podcast. Really looking forward to having you on. I'm coming to share. I've read a bit about your background and it sounds like, and the work you're doing now, and it sounds amazing. So really happy to have you on uh, once again. Thank you. And I'm really excited to be here. So looking forward to talking to you. Yeah. Look, before we get into things, first things first, for people who may not know who you are, maybe the work that you do, do you mind giving us a brief introduction? Yes. Yeah, so I'm Councillor Sharon Thompson and my councillor in Birmingham. I was elected in 2014 and I've just had my third successful election. And I'm also the cabinet member for housing and homelessness in Birmingham. And um, I've been a cabinet member for four years. Great. Before we get into things, I like to, what we like to do is keep things chronological, you know, start with your upbringing and that kind of thing. But first things first, with all of the work you're doing, especially around the homelessness piece, what's your why that drives what you do? So in terms of around the homelessness piece, it's well documented that I was a homeless teenager in the city. So I left home at 16. Um, I only ever slept rough once, one night. I was not resilient enough to do it for any longer. Um, And I ended up in um, St. Basil's Hostels for a period of time. Um, So I had a kind of like, it was quite personal, trying not to, trying to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. And one of my mantras is definitely not to be a victim of life issues, but to be victorious through them, which means helping other people to make sure that they don't fall into that. So that's part of my why. Um, And the second part of my why is um, just before my first election in 2014, um, my friend Andy was doing a sleep out. It it wasn't an up, it was a genuine sleep out with rough sleepers. Um, And he introduced me to them and I said to them, I can't promise you change. If I get elected, I promise you I'll try to get your voices heard. Um, and that was a promise that I, I endeavoured to keep. That's it. Thank you very much for that. So let's start off. You mentioned there that you were homeless for a period of time when you were a teenager. Can you paint a picture before you became homeless as to what your upbringing was like? Uh, where did you grow up and what was the environment like for you? Yes, I, I, I grew up in a... Um, my mum raised me by herself at a single parent home. Um, I think my nan had was like a great influence in my life. Like many young people from a Caribbean background, I loved going to see nanny and spending time with her. And, you know, I think a lot of my ethics, particularly work ethics um, and attitudes um, to life have come from my nan Um, and, you know, being around my cousins. And then once I hit my teenager years, um, you know, I had four lights with my mum at home, wasn't really getting on. Um, and then I, I became homeless and, you know, I did what was called as sofa surfing. So I stopped at friends' houses. It was just it was the day before I left, the day before I started college, actually, that I became homeless and still went to college the next day. Um, and, you know, in the end, just sort of sofa surfed and then ended up going to St. Basil's. But in terms of my upbringing, 
um, you know, I've been through a lot of challenges in my upbringing, but also had a lot of happy memories. And, you know, with my aunts who were quite young at the time, so they were sort of like friends at the same time. And, you know, we all used to, you know, Nan's house was the matriarchal of the family. So everybody used to land there on the weekend. With on, on you becoming homeless at a young age, could you expand upon what the what some of the the situation was that led to that happening? Yeah, so, um, you know, my mum was quite strict on what time you come in and I'd, I'd spent time, it was at my nan's actually, it was on a Sunday. Um, and, you know, I ended up in a situation where I'd come home late from nan's and, and she'd, she'd sort of, you know, locked me out, so to speak. And the next day... Um, I stayed at my friends and the next day I went home um, and my things were packed up on, on my bed. So I was like, okay, I'm going to college. I'll come back for them later. And that, that was literally it. Um, so we kind of had an up-down relationship. I think, you know, there's many, like many parents that have been born in the West Indies and come over, you know, their attitudes are very different to sort of us second generation, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, so we had sort of an up-and-down relationship, but I'm really pleased that we've got a really strong relationship now. So it's all good. All right, that's perfect. Thank you for that. And on, so when you were homeless and you, I know you were doing the couch surfing for a little bit, you only slept rough one night. But what was that period of time for you as well? That changed from, you know, growing up in your household to now not necessarily knowing where you're going to lay your head out, lay, lay your head every single night. What was that change like in that period of life for I you? I had two very different experiences in one period of time. So I remember there's, there's a guy that's a community activist and well-known in Birmingham called um, Maxie Hales. And I remember when I went to um, the Link, which is a centre where you sort of, you go there if you're young and you're homeless. And I was scared. I thought I was, you know, didn't know what hostels were about or get robbed and beat up, whatever. So I was very, very scared when I went there. Um, and he just looked at me and he went, it's okay, sweetheart, you're going to be okay. And he helped me to fill informed. He found me a hostel. And the first hostel I was in, I made some really good friends and, and you know, we had, it, we, it, was, it was good. Um, I had my own little flatlet and it was very different because I had to buy my own electric. I was buying my own shopping. Um, it was accelerated into this adult world very quickly while still being a young person. So that was very strange, but we kind of managed it. And, um, you know, we'd be running across to, has anybody got any seasoning because I've run out? Um, <laughs> and then... It changes very quickly, the dynamics. So people move out, people come and go. So the second hostel that I was in was very different. And, um, you know, that's when I actually felt more the poverty end. So I ended up, you know, on a Sunday, I'd walk miles with my bag of washing to my aunt's house to get a Sunday dinner and my clothes washed. Me and my friend would fight over 50 pence because that is all we had for our name and living on porridge for four days a week because we didn't manage money properly as well because, you know, we were signing on and, and, you know, sort of that kind of life. So it wasn't easy, but you know what? Every experience makes you stronger, and I wasn't prepared to be a victim of the experiences I've been through. Um, and it sort of, it, it just prepared me for life in a very different way, and it's made me more resilient, um, and it makes me appreciate things differently. So in my current role, one of the things that I'm always adamant on is that we should always look to experts by experience, people with lived experience, when we're talking about politics and policy um, and shaping things, because too often it's people that have gone through really difficult times that fall through the cracks of those policies and it's pointless then. So, um, so yes, I, I've carried that all the way through my life. 
Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm a massive believer in that as well. Um, if you've got that lived experience, you can very, very directly relate to what it's like to be homeless. Um, and then from there, you can be more empathetic with the people you're dealing with and just ultimately, you know, um, you know, deliver up a better service and work better for people. Um, I'm a massive believer in that. Um, nothing beats experience at all. Uh, and on this, this the that side of things, that world, because it's for me, like, it's so foreign because I've never been homeless before. And then you hear about it and you were 16 years old. And for me, it just, it sounds crazy. You get what I'm saying? It just sounds like, it sounds like, wow. Um, at that age, when I was 16 years old, I was 16. I was, you know, living cushy, I suppose, you know, having little 16 year old problems thinking they were the biggest problem in the world, but they didn't have problems like that whatsoever. Yeah. So going from electric to college, trying to keep straight. And um, there's a lot of going around you because people are kind of making their way through life. You see all kinds of things happen, people going to prison, all kinds of stuff. So it's very difficult to keep yourself on straight and narrow. And one of the stories I always tell people is of a girl called Sharon, and she lived in hostels, the same hostels as I was. And years later, Sharon, I seen Sharon, she was begging on the street, she was had a gas can, um, and her life had fallen apart and she'd not been able to get straight. So I think that I was quite fortunate that people, one, invested in me because they saw something in me, and two, I could then go back to the principles that Nanny had installed in me that you know you never give up you get back on your feet and you try to make the best of the situation. Did you find that there were many other young people uh, in the hostels that you're staying in? Yeah because it was St Basil's is a hostel for under 25s so um, it was people between the ages of uh, 16, 17, 17 and, um, and, and 25 so we were all and you kind of we adopted groups of friends, so we would go over to another hostel where we would cook for them, and we'd all chill and we'd all hang out. So you kind of make your way through, and and you know you don't necessarily have all the grounding when you have people there to guide you. The way I would guide my son now as a teenager, but you try to do your best, and it's not an easy space to be in. But the good thing was was that I was lucky that I was in a good hostel where the um, support staff did support you so they you know they put you in your place that's not acceptable you can't do that that's not like how life works um but then they would also guide you so they kind of bridged that gap and that was incredibly important so now as an adult looking back at that period of time in your life how would you say that's affected who you are today hugely i think um again some of my principles the way that i empathize with things um and also i kind of built this mantra that um, we've got a right to be in position, we've got a right to do whatever we want to do. So I think it's like it's been a huge measure of where I've got come from to where I am now. But I think the key thing is is about it, it's important to me that we have people, black people from within our communities who are real, that go into challenge themselves and step into different spaces because there are certain spaces that don't understand people like us and unless we're at the table there's going to be no one there speaking up for us so that was really important so you know I went on to in my late 20s or early 30s I was a magistrate um I'd spoken in I'd been taken to places such as um the home office Westminster to speak to ministers about what it was like for people like me and why I didn't feel like they reflected or supported communities like me. 
Um, and I was speaking to government ministers. And at the time, I didn't really understand the magnitude of it. But I was prepared to sit at the table and speak up for our communities and people like me, because I'm not unique in terms of the circumstances. There are a lot of young people that have been through what I've been through. And, um, you know, and I want to make sure that if I'm in a position to give a voice for them, then that's what I'll do. So I've learned a lot and there's, there's been a lot of things. that It's just moulded and changed me. And it's always taught me to just keep on fighting and that when you reach a goal, you need to set a new one and start again. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, so with you in your 20s and early 30s and going and doing, you know, delivering talks in these different places and whatnot, it sounds like those were like your very early beginnings into the world of politics. Uh, in your own experience with you being homeless and then, you know, where you are now, in what ways did you feel that you weren't properly catered for or looked after? And yeah, in what ways were, do you feel like the system was lacking and wasn't really, you know, looking after you properly? So when I was 19, um, I had my son and that was a game changer for me being a mum. And I wanted to, um, I wanted to upskill myself, basically. I wanted to get a job and I was dyslexic. I never, I never knew my alphabet until I was like in my twenties when I had my son and um, because of my dyslexia, but still managed to do my GCSEs and things. So um, in a way, that some parts of it felt like they'd given up on people like myself. And then other parts felt like they just didn't understand. And they just constantly wanted to push us down a route. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with um, some of the, you know, the career paths that they were pushing us down. But, you know, they were talking about hairdressing and, 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 and um, um, sort of brick laying for the lads, which is nothing wrong with that. Actually, why wasn't they automatically thinking that this is our next planners, our next architects? You know, there wasn't that level of ambition for us. And then when I did, um, I did a lot of voluntary work and I used to take my buggy with me, you know, and that's not the way. I think there should be other opportunities. And there wasn't anywhere I could take him for childcare while I was doing that. There was also the fact that, um, you know, I, 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 was on, I was on benefits, I was on income support. Um, and then when I did get a job, my first job, I was like, oh, this is amazing. And then quickly realised because housing benefit and everything else was stopping, I actually ended up financially worse off than I was when I, when I, when I was sort of um, on, on benefits and stuff. And I was just kind of like, you know what, there needs to be better pathways. And the other thing was that there is opportunities out there, but our communities just didn't seem to hear about them or they weren't translated in a way that was palatable for us to be able to engage. So I thought, you know, those are the things that I thought was missing. And then I took part in a national project, which was because I was a single mother and I took part in their national project, which was aimed around, um, it was a policy toolkit for policymakers who were making policies that affected lone parents in the workplace. Because my son went into hospital and I was still expected to go to work every day whilst going to the hospital and, and I didn't know how to manage and the workplace policies weren't very empathetic towards that. So I just wanted to make a difference and a change. That the the policy toolkit, when when did that happen? Was that around the times where you were still delivering the talks on homelessness as well? Or what period of time in your life did that happen? That was like sort of before I'd actually hit politics. So I was sort of in my twenties back then. Um and um the, the organisation was called Weights Women Acting in Today's Society. And they sort of helped me enter into politics because once we helped to bring normal, everyday people to, to come together to do this national toolkit, 
Um, and there was us in Birmingham and there was other people in London and it was all across the country and there was bringing it together. Um, they then took me to, um, like I said, Westminster and I was speaking to ministers. I ended up on a panel with the, um, the Speaker of the House, who was John Burko at the time. So I got to speak on different things and they also taught me around sort of the language. So I always say, you know, if I went to give a presentation in France and I spoke in English, and someone gave exactly the same presentation and spoke in French, it would resonate better with them. So they kind of helped me to understand how to use the power of my voice. So all those things were really important. All right. Thank you for that. That's an, it all makes sense. You've just got that. You've got like a, a thread going there. It's all about essentially you've gone through what you've gone through. And then it's about helping other people who have gone through similar situations to yourself. So if like the National Toolkit, for example, you're struggling with managing work and your, your son at the same time. OK, I'm going to go out and campaign and do what I've got to do for that. Then on the homeless side of things, it's like, OK, I've, I've been through this and I see where services are lacking all right i'm gonna jump out there and then do what i can as well for other people in this similar situation um it's like that empathetic thread you know yeah, throughout absolutely. your life and then where you are now is sort of like the next step is you know next part in that same thread um in what you've been doing did you know that you wanted to become a, an mp a minister so in terms of a councillor no absolutely not i was i, I didn't i you know i didn't vote I used to say that politics wasn't for me. Um, I didn't think they spoke to communities like myself, so I, was, I didn't have that level of interest. What I didn't realise was some of the things I'd done was involving in politics in that way. Um, I, w- I worked for the council as a community worker, um, and in the area that I was um, working, one of the local councillors, um, we was having a conversation. I said to him, I don't know what you do. I really don't know what you do. He said, okay, shadow me then. I said, okay, then I will. So I ended up shadowing him for a period of time. And I was like, actually, you work really hard. Um, and he was like, you'd actually make a really good counsellor. And I was like, no, it's okay. I'm not interested. But what it did make me realise was, was that in terms of the black community, we are excellent at grassroots and we, you know, we can, we can build communities, we can run facilities, and um, we can put on activities, we can do, we can campaign. But what there was a lack at the next stage of people in politics around those decision-making tables that could push it that a little bit further. Um, and that's when I realised, actually, this is important and it does affect me. And realising that, actually, politics has to do with every bit of our lives, right down to the clothes that we buy, is it, um, you know, the, the cost of it is also involved politics, the school, the education that we get, everything, it's, it all affects. And I wanted to have more autonomy in, in, in what I was doing. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Right. On this, let's talk about homelessness. So actually, you know what, before we even get into that, let me read some stuff. Because before we jumped onto this call, I read some numbers. I don't, um, it was from one source, you know, from December 2021. So it might not be the most up to date numbers, but they were startling. And they shook me. So here they are. So in Britain, there are 227,000 people who are homeless. Most of them are in England. There's a higher level of homelessness in England with 0.86% of households experiencing homelessness. And that translates to one in 116 people in England. And then it's slightly lower in Wales and Scotland and whatnot. Um, so when I saw, saw that, I was like, those numbers are crazy. They're very, very high. And I think people have a conception that homelessness is, it looks like just somebody sleeping rough in the streets, but then there's different forms and types of homelessness as well. So um, could you, first of all, just touch upon different types of homelessness and also what the drivers are that are causing this? Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
I'll give you another stat. Um, between 2010 and 2017, rough sleeping in the UK increased by a staggering 167%. Wow. Yeah, 167%. So um, one of the things I always say is that there's an element of political decision-making. So before 2010, there was a, the, 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 the um, political direction was that we looked at prevention. So there's a lot of stuff around prevention. From 2010 onwards, they didn't really see the benefit of, well, it doesn't seem to be a problem. So they didn't really focus on prevention. And then you start to see numbers go up. And then other things like, you know, sort of, you know, food banks were never a thing when I was at school. So um, those things um, have a massive, huge effect on us. And then on the other side of it, you're right. So people focus on rough sleeping. But one of the biggest areas that, and I find it's probably one of the most troubling, is actually what we call statutory homeless. So it's families who are homeless. So there's over 100,000 children in the UK with no permanent home. That's just crazy. So even in Birmingham, we have a population of over a million people and we have over 4,000 families with no permanent home. So they're in temporary accommodation, they're in bed and breakfast. And then you also get those that we call sofa surfers. That, um, so they don't actually, some of them don't consider themselves to be homeless. So they will be stopping at their friend's house or stopping with family. Um, and those are the ones that we call sofa surfers. And then there's hidden homeless are literally people who actually don't want to be found and it's very difficult to find them because they might have gone through some form of trauma in their lives and they don't trust people and systems. So um, those are the kind of different forms that you have. Um, the, key, the key reasons what we find nowadays for people becoming homeless, one is an unstable housing market. So some people in the private rented sector and people want to sell their houses and they become homeless because they've lost their home in that way. The other one is sort of domestic abuse. So there's a huge amount of people that become homeless through domestic violence and abuse. Um, and the other one, it can be some form of addiction, whether that's um, alcohol, it could be gambling, it could be drugs that can lead you into that pathway. Um, but on a really geeky sense, there's two different types of factors about things that push people into crisis. So on one side, you've got things like poor access to housing, poor education, um, lack of job opportunities. And those are all system things. Them are things that policy and politics, they're things that are affected by the system and the economy. And then on the other side are the more personal factors, which might be um, you might have been exposed to domestic abuse as a child, but it was your parents fighting. You could have come out of prison. It could have been all those kind of things. And the more that you have those factors stacking up, is the more likely you are in your adult life to become, to fall into some form of crisis, whether that's homelessness, domestic abuse or something else. So it's really, it's more complex than people think it is. And that's why I think as a, as a society, to help prevent some of those things, we need to address on one side, the personal things as a community and how we, um, how the village looks after the community. And on the other side, there are structural issues that are affected by the system. So like now, we're all thrown in a cost of living crisis. So what's that going to mean? Well, inflation goes up. You can't get, you know, it's difficult to get jobs and all the rest of it. And it has a knock-on effect. So, you know, I, I think there's, there's things that we can do as individuals and as a community to protect the next generation and others. 
but we also need people to get into positions where they're a part of influencing policy and decision making. Yeah, when you put it like that, because the homelessness is sort of like, it's the result. It's not necessarily, there's a lot more that goes into it. You know what I'm saying? And you're, what you're saying is like, it's a system thing. You've got like all of these, if you're talking the domestic abuse and then other societal cost of living crisis, they say inflation is 10%, I think 10.1%, I might be wrong, but something like that. Um, if, it feels like a hell of a lot more than 10% when I go to the shop. Everything is a lot more than 10% more expensive than it used to be last last year or whatever. Um, house prices, everything is... So the 10% is a bit of an arbitrary figure because it's a lot higher than 10%, I tell you that. Uh, and it's crazy. And then things, things are forecast to get more and more prices as well for a period of time. Uh, interest rates today, as we're recording this, were um, got hiked up 75 basis points, which is going to be crazy for people with housing mortgages are going to go up therefore rents are going to go up quite exponentially 100 percent. so those things are completely out of individuals control so it's not as easy as just saying oh well that person you know it's just down to domestic abuse or it's just down to drug abuse there's so much more that layers into it and like i said the more you've got stacked up against you is the more likely you are to fall into crisis on the, you spoke you mentioned the hidden homeless yeah what does that look like you said they don't want to be found are they people that we can be interacting with on a day-to-day basis and not know that they're homeless yeah so there's 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 different so in terms of the hidden homeless sometimes um even with your sleepers they'll go into places where they can't you can't find them so they've been derelict buildings or places like that they just completely shut themselves away from um society and sometimes that can be people that are sort of economic migrants so it's you know they've come over here to work and, and you know or the you know working cash in hand and they're just kind of hidden and the other thing that I say to people is is that for many you know I get a lot of organizations oh what can we do to help the homelessness and I also get your house in order you need to make sure that your organization is in a place where people feel like it's not a taboo and it's okay to come forward and say I am struggling because if you hit people in the prevention space you're less likely to have the homelessness and there'll be people that we go to that we, we see on a daily basis and we just don't know their living circumstances. You know, there's people living in cars. There's, they're off the radar. Yeah, no, that's crazy. The, the hidden homeless side of things, because it's sort of like, like you said, it's difficult to measure. Yeah, it's impossible to measure. So it's sort of like, although we've got our numbers on homelessness and whatnot, then you've got that aspect of society. And it's hard, you don't know, you know, it's hard to measure. You don't know how big or small that sector is really. Um so you don't you don't one hundred percent have an idea how big of an issue this is really. Not really. Even the government make us do a um, every local authority has to do a, a rough sleeping count every year, which usually takes place around about November, and it's just a snapshot. So you go out on one night and you we do it late at night till one o'clock in the morning, or we do it till six, um, because we want to measure actual homelessness because some people are begging but they're not homeless. So. Um, so, so that, that you know but it's a snapshot it's not the 100 percent true figure so it is very difficult to 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 um predict on the people that are begging and not homeless uh there's you got this like what do you call it like the the fake homeless people and sometimes it because you hear these stories like that and sometimes you may even come across people like that and then they're they're begging but then you find out that they actually have houses to go home to or whatnot um and they're making a living from what they're doing for me, I don't know what the exact statistics are as to how many are 
fake homeless or real homeless or whatnot. And sometimes, you know, you want to you wanna do something good and you might give them a bit of money, you might give them some food or whatever, only to find out you've been duped later on. Uh, is there any way, is there any way to know? Is there a way we should interact with homeless people? Yeah, so, so we, we, I call those, I call it the street population because we'll have people that have been rough sleeping, they've got a property, but it's their coping mechanism to be out there so their friends are there or that's the way they see that they earn their money. So, you know, they end up back in that space. We get some people are there because it's exploitation. They are being placed there by somebody. And, you know, the money that they get, they have to give it up or they, or they exchange it for drugs. So there is, there's a number of reasons. And I think that they're all vulnerable in their own right, if that makes sense. Then you get the unscrupulous who will just, you're like, you know, just like blatant, like what you said, you know, they'll just go out there and, just beg um, and, and, and have better circumstances. So in terms of the population, in terms of normal, like everyday people, I always say, it's not for me to tell you what to do with your money, but from my perspective, and this is a true story, I knew a rough sleeper and he had no job. He didn't sign on. 100% of his money came from the public. He died of a Black Mamba episode. Now, at the time, Black Mamba, which is like a, a drug, was being sold between 50 pence and £2.50. That 50 pence or £2.50 he got from the public, and that was what ended his life that night. So I'm always like, don't give money because you don't know people's circumstances. And that's why in Birmingham, what we did is we set something up called Change Into Action. So people can go on the app and they can donate change, but 100% of the money goes towards a rough sleeper. So outreach teams will say, we've got this rough sleeper and they need help with this. Um, and, you know, or we need to get them a phone so we can keep in contact with them. Or, you know, they need to um, get their sort of ID, like their passport or the birth certificate so they can sign on because they need to get ID now. So we would claim those things for them through this sort of fund. And, we also, and that's why I say give people food or just, you know, donate to charities so we can help them in a different way. Yeah, no, for sure. Because I, I agree. What I used to do quite a lot of was to give money. And then over time, I've started to do more just giving food, I suppose, to giving money just because I, I I don't know, to be honest, where that I don't know. And then you have that bit of a moral dilemma. It's like, oh, but should I give it or should I not? But then, you, you know what I'm saying? You have that moral dilemma. But then I do a bit more food now. And even sometimes you know, when you try and give food and it gets rejected and you think, oh, OK, like, why would you why would you turn down, you know, free food? in all of that so it's difficult sometimes i think like to to know what to do um when it comes to some homeless people and you spoke about the people who are placed there so it's sort of like like human trafficking really basically there is and there is and that's that's why we've we've we've, we've done a piece of work in birmingham around around trafficking because that's what sometimes it is and we have to be honest in society to say that actually sometimes this is what's happening to our people and 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 once you're honest about what's actually happening then you can try and put things in place to try and stop and mitigate from those things on the, the, the giving money side of things as well though because we can give them food but then on the on the flip side because we need food but we need a lot more as well to sustain ourselves we people might you might need to buy a toothbrush if you've got homeless if you've got a phone like some people are gonna have phones you might need to buy a charger charge your phone you know just like like you said sometimes you say these organizations say they need phones for their people so they can contact them etc yeah there's different things that you can give so i always used to um when i was out doing i still go out every now and then and do outreach and when i do 
I would give, I would take baby wipes and things like that because people can clean themselves a bit with the baby wipes and, you know, and, and just making sure that if, if it's biscuits and things like that, wrap, you know, make sure they're packaged well. And um, I don't take spicy food because obviously I've got access to toilets and all those kind of things. So it's just about being a little bit more thoughtful around those processes. But some of the other work that I'm involved with, um, other than that is, because obviously a lot of this is about housing as well. And there's a need, there's a lack of housing out there. So um, part of my remit is to work with the housing associations and the councils. Um, and I have the biggest political um, housing portfolio in the country um, um, at local government, in, in local government. So it's, it's a significant sort of remit. Um, and I sit on different um, boards and things like that across the country. So I represent us in Europe as well. Um, and one of the areas that I've been sort of plugging away at recently is around um, what we call exempt accommodation, which is supported housing. So they're supposed to support people who are vulnerable, like some of the people actually that will end up sleeping. Um, but there's some loopholes that people have managed to fall themselves through. So I've been campaigning nationally around that. And um, I've been speaking to ministers and trying to get changes. And I was really pleased recently that it looks like the government are actually going to consider changing the law around it. So it was amazing to be a part of that kind of um, lobbying and journey into that area as well. That's great. That's great. Uh, with homelessness, do you see any trends, whether by ethnicity, by if it's more migrants versus non-migrants, any sort of trends? Yeah. So in terms of um, in terms of homelessness, so rough sleeping, you tend to see a higher proportion of single men um, on the streets. Definitely. Um, a lot of times at the moment, um, even though there's, there's targets to end up sleeping, what you'll find is a lot of more um, sort of migrant. So you'll find people who um, have come over to the UK but don't have the right to sign on. So how are they going to pay the rent if they can't get a job because they haven't got an address? So you'll find a lot of those in terms of rough sleeping. Family homelessness, um, what you find is, is actually a lot of black particularly black community, but I'd say ethnic minorities are more um, likely to fall into um, family homelessness than others. The statistics will show you that disproportionately there is more black families in um, homelessness situations as families. And is that driven by what we spoke about when it comes to lack of affordable housing? Yeah, it's also the fact that you've got sort of, um, it's the inequalities. So, you know, we've seen growing up education, Black boys always had a rougher time when it came to the education side of it. Um, if you look at the criminal justice system, disproportionately we found ourselves in that in terms of the police, the way we're treated. All those things stacking up against us means the gap of inequalities ends up wider. And as a consequence of widening the gap of inequalities, we end up in crisis, which includes homelessness. You know what? That's so interesting when you put it like that because when I started this podcast, my main thing was all about closing inequality gaps, and it's more so things I've experienced myself. So whether it's been like rough policing or school, you know, uh, when we there's wealth inequality gaps, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all of these things I've experienced or have seen myself, yeah. Uh, and then as you're talking now, it's like this it, inequality has manifest itself in so many ways, in ways in which you, you wouldn't even clock. Maybe if you haven't even been through, you wouldn't even realise it. And he's talking, I'm like, rah, it manifests itself like that. And it's nothing I've really ever considered until literally right now. I'm like, wow, 
It's it's crazy. It is. All these things are a consequence of inequalities. So then my next question is it might be an obvious answer, but then what's the what's the solution? Like how do we what's the solution to closing down and ultimately maybe one day stopping all homelessness in the UK? So I think one of the things is is affordable housing, which is going to be sort of that's a huge thing. Um nationally we haven't built enough there's building of properties, but they're not affordable there's lack of social housing council properties so that's always going to be a massive driver because we have families that are in temporary accommodation and some of them are there for years because we haven't got big enough council properties and the waiting lists are all too high so one thing is 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 around actually um building properties and then there's the other thing which i call designing out homelessness so and designing out for me is not just about looking at what we're trying to avoid it's about trying to design what we're trying to create. So when I look at housing, I think to myself, okay, then, yes, I need to, we need to stop homelessness. But we also are, we're also sort of um, developing a housing market that is for future renters, future buyers. Do you know what I mean? So we've got to think about actually the jobs and skills in all of that. So, for instance, Birmingham, we're one of the few councils that actually build our own council properties. And we're the biggest council house builder in the country. Um, but what we do is, is a small percentage of um, what comes out of any scheme. So we do mixed tenures. So we do like council properties as well as private. We don't believe in just having sort of like just council estates anymore. Um, and a percentage of that goes into a scholarship fund. So young people who what the clusters, you know, like marginal. So there might be. Um, uh, Black ethnic minorities that might live in disadvantaged areas, but there's a lot of poverty, it might be females. Um, we target those type of young people and we help them to go through university. So we've got young people who have gone on to get first class honours degree in becoming a planner or an architect. So and thinking actually you're our next set of buyers rather than just thinking of, okay, we've just got to do social housing and that actually we're not building people up as well. So it's about trying to build that balance and looking at it in the broader concept. That's amazing. And that's like a very tangible way in which you can work towards closing inequality gaps, at least in Birmingham. Yeah. And it's only, it's only small steps, but it's just, it, is, it makes a difference to somebody's life. For sure, it's small steps in the right direction. If everybody was thinking like that and then doing their small bit, you know, we, we wouldn't have the massive gaps that we have. And it would go a long way into closing some, you know, solving a lot of these issues because inequality is like, like I said, manifests itself in a million different ways. It's not just in the ones that we hear about, you know, quite a lot more often, some homelessness, which, and all sorts of other ways. So, um, yeah, that's that's amazing. Hats off to you and the team for, for that. One of the other things that we did as well was that, um, so, you know, sometimes, like, especially with our generations, you know, they, they end up in a big house because they've got a big family. Um, and then there's only sort of, like, Nan living in the property because there's only her left. And they're not going to give up a, like, a big three-bedroom house. It's a thing they're going to end up in the tower block or, do you know what I mean, at that time of life. So we've built, we try to build dormer bungalows. So we built a number, we build a number of dormer bungalows. So they've got an upstairs on them and you can change how you use them based on your mobility as you get on. But the aim is, is to build those, to target those older people that are in big family houses so that they can transfer into these and then free up a family house so that we can get someone that's homeless back into a family property. And it's doing things like that and trying to make things different. That, that would be great for the family homeless population of people as well. 
that's great yeah thank you for sharing that so looking back on your your time in the political space not necessarily just as a counselor but just in general in this political space what would you say has been one of your biggest wins when it comes to this in this area of homelessness um when i first there's a couple when i first came into the portfolio rough sleeping um the estimated figure was 71 no it was 90 it went up to 94 um in the pandemic we got it down to single figures um, and in the pandemic, we got more people in. To, and, and, and we had about 10 people who'd been on the streets for years and we ended up reuniting them with family. And that, to me, is amazing. So that's, that's one of the things. The other thing is the work that I've been doing on exempt accommodation because, you know, as a, from a council, as a councillor, it's not very often that you get to influence a national um, uh, select committee or to to be able to sort of meet with ministers and really push for something and then say, actually, yeah, we're going to think about changing the law. So being a part of that for me was a huge, huge step. Um, and I guess one of the biggest things, which which is not necessarily a career thing, but more of a personal thing, that to have gone from a homeless teenager in the city that I live in to then end up being the cabinet member and the person responsible for the strategy on homelessness across the entire city representing us on national bodies for me that's a huge deal um and it's something that's not just for me it means that I can actually go out and speak to young people from our communities and genuinely say look I was I used to break the rules I wasn't perfect by any stretch of the measure so if I can do it trust me you definitely can do it so um so it's been able to do that and it's also um having um when you've mentored young people from the community and they come back and, and, yeah, and they say to you, you know, I've got, I'm, I'm off to university and I'm doing this, that's quite special to me. How does your upbringing affect the way in which you're, you parent your son now? Uh, so, so my son, I talk about my son like he's really young, but my son is actually 23. So um, he's quite big, but um, it, completely different. So, um, like, you know, he's like my sidekick, my son is. I'm like, um, I, I've you know, I've always made sure that um, I spend quality time with him because I think it's really easy to live in a house with somebody and actually spend real quality time with them. So we have our mother and son dates, so to speak, where we've got to arrange who's, you know, who's who's arranging what we're doing. You know, I used to go and do things like watch WWE wrestling and all kinds of stuff with him, um, not things that I was into at the time. Um, yeah, and, and and kind of like, you know, we talk all the time and, and really really close and whatever dream he has and um, my son's into photography um and you know I just backed him 100% and, and then as a result he's um you know he's gone on to do you know he's took pictures of like Julian Marley, Maxi Priest you know he's done some really good things with um Wasser for Showcase and and some other stuff so yeah so my relationship with my son is completely um different and I'm, I'm really I'm really intentional with my parenting, really, really intentional with my parenting. And I'm also very clear. Um, he can come, he, my son can talk to me about anything, but I'm also very clear. I am still your mom and um, have manners, please. But <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so about with that kind of stuff either. And um, yeah, he's a really pleasant and manageable young person. So, and I'm incredibly proud. That's great. That's great. Maxi Priest, he's got one song I love, uh, Close to You. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's a big tune. Big, big tune. That's it. All right. What are you grateful for in life and why? Um, do you know what? I'm grateful that um, 
life's taken me in a direction when in my younger years that means I can recognize and understand what an opportunity actually looks like. Because I think sometimes we see opportunities and we just, we don't even recognize them. And I think sometimes we can be chasing the next thing and not taking time to step back and say, actually, look how far I've come. So I'm, I'm really grateful that I'm able to reflect back. I'm also really grateful that um, I've been blessed enough to have good people around me. And, and I will reach out to people and say, you know, I really admire you. Can I just spend a bit of time with you? Because I think wisdom is something we should always be grasping at. Um, and, and, I, and I'm grateful that I've got a love for reading, which is really, and for some people to say, why are you grateful for that? And I say, because my life's so busy. I really appreciate the time that I've got that's mine. And actually with reading, you know, once you get knowledge, you, you can't give it back. And we should always be trying to expand our thinking and, and, and our perspectives on different things. So those things I'm really grateful for. And the most simple thing I'm really grateful for is having a house. And I know, you know, having been a homeless teenager, it, it just, you know, it, it just grounds you and makes you be more appreciative of the smaller things in life and kind of building your castle. No, I, I agree 100%. When you have something and then you don't have it, when you get it back, you appreciate it so much more. I had a um, saying happen to me, well, like a few years back. I remember I went to the barbers and I had my, my wallet on me. And when it's time for me to pay, I can't find my wallet. I'm like, oh my gosh, where's my wallet, blah, blah, blah. I found out I'd lost it. And I walked down, I'd run down the road. Basically, I found it on the floor in the place I'd um, left it, or place where it fell out of my pocket. And then I came back and I had the biggest smile on my Rats face kids. ever but yeah but I was like what are you so happy about it? I'm like oh, I got my wallet <laughs> but it's like then it hit me I'm like when I walked out my house with it, I didn't even think about it yeah. but then when you lost it and you get it back you're like yes yes you really appreciate it and then with something as big as a house I get it you're gonna be very 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 happy very grateful as well for that so thank you for sharing that and last question as you prepare to wrap up what does the next chapter in your own story look like so at the moment, I mean, I'm, I'm a cabinet member in, in Birmingham, so I'm, I'm, I'm in quite a blessed position in terms of locally, politically. Um, I guess the next step is kind of just thinking about where I go in terms of my political life, about making those decisions about, you know, do, do I want to think about going to parliament? Is it something more regional? So um, those are the things that I'm weighing off. Um, but in politics, we keep our cards close to our chest. Um, the other thing that I'm doing at the moment in the pandemic, I actually started writing my life journey in the book. So um, I need to finish that off. So that's something I need to do. Um, the other thing that's really important to me is um, because I was, I'm a dyslexic, I'm dyslexic um, and I left school with G, a few GCSEs. Um, I went back to study through the Open University. So um, one of the things is, is that, you know, eventually I want to get to the point where I can do like a PhD or something because I think it's really important to keep on studying and keep pushing yourself in that manner. So um, to answer that, so I'm being a bit of a politician here and not really answering your question in terms of career-wise, um, but in terms of I do intend to just make sure that I'm uh, focused on the day-to-day job but also thinking about my growth and what that looks like. That's it. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on and sharing. Thank you so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, it's all good. I've really enjoyed having you on. Shared so much. I've learned so much as well from this conversation. So thank you. Thank you for coming on. Uh, as we wrap up, have you got any last words that you might want to share? And also, if people want to keep up to date with maybe yourself or the work that you're doing, how can they best do so? 
So if you want to keep up with the work that I'm doing, choose you the best place to find me is on Twitter or social media because I update things quite often. So that's at Miss MS underscore S Thompson. Um, or you can find me on LinkedIn or Facebook like most other people. Um, in terms of what would I like to say to wrap up, um, I guess my message is to our community. Um, you know, we get to the point, I remember, you know, looking up at the elders and then all of a sudden we're not far from being, <laughs> we're not that far away from being in the elder space. So I guess it's just about, my message is to please make sure you live with intent and be intentional um, you know, life's precious and time's precious and be intentional with your time and your relationships because, you know, life, we've seen in the pandemic life and, you know, with people that we know life um, is quite fickle. Um, but also, I think as a community, um, we need to be thinking that however we will pass the mantle, we need to make sure we pass it on in a better way. So the next generation, should we, we shouldn't be passing over the mantle in a, in a, in a, a worse position than we picked it up in the first place. So we've got to live with intent, not just for ourselves and our households and our friends, but actually for building for the next generation. And that we also need to make sure that, you know, don't be afraid to ask because the most that anybody's ever going to say is no. And if they say no, what have you lost? Um, so don't be afraid to ask that person if actually, can you mentor me or can, can I spend some time with you? And there's no such thing as a glass ceiling. The question is, how do you break through it? So if you can't find an opportunity, create an opportunity if you can't find the key to the padlock then you you need to make the the key to the padlock because you know we've got a golden opportunity as a community to really strive forward and i think this is our golden opportunity to do it so if we ain't going to do it in this generation who is so i think it's really important that we pass the mantle in a very strong position all right thank you very much thank you so much um great last words and in that vein i'm going to ask if you're listening to this podcast now please do leave us a review uh rating wherever it is listening to this it really really does help us in amplifying these inspirational stories of these people get on here so please do leave us a review rating and subscribe wherever you're listening to this but that's that for now we had counselor sharon thompson on the podcast this is 1000 voices and for now everybody we're out